Good morning. Um, before we get into it, uh, where'd Diamond go? She disappeared. That's what she does. Um, my wife. Man, thank you for singing that. I didn't know that was coming. I didn't know that tag was coming, but, you know, I've been hounding uh, Render like, for the, like the last week for that song, and, you know, it's because it was on my heart for like the last month, and so thank you. Um, I think it was definitely the Lord. Um, there's just something about worship, and we can just sing truth to who God is, you know? And just the, the last hallelujah, it is the most emphatic declaration that we can make as Christians. If you're Christian, it is this collision of identifying who God is and saying you are worthy of praise, but it's absolutely plural. It is a plural praise, so it's a corporate word. Hallelujah. It's powerful. Um, I think it's appropriate to start our message with our call to worship, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll get right after it. Uh, we, we, see, we say this at the beginning, and it is an invitation to receive a home. It is an invitation to, to be reminded that you're not alone or crazy. And after a transition to cry out corporately to God, we just want to call people back to what we're after. So feel free to receive this. To all who are spiritually weary and seek rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who struggle and desire victory. That's you. To all who sin and need a savior, to all who are strangers and want fellowship, if you are feeling lonely and forgotten, that emotion of loneliness is a reminder that you were made for intimacy. Thank you for being here. To all who hunger and thirst after righteousness and to whoever will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers her welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, um, man, um, God, we, we get to meet with you um, in song and you stir the affections that we were made for. To know and enjoy you is the cry of our hearts. Thank you for meeting with us. Yahweh, Yahweh. God, we don't just meet with you through the songs we sing. We meet with you through the word that's preached, your words to us. So God, be powerful. Be precise. Pierce and grab a hold of us and draw us in through the word in front of us as it is preached. And so God, focus me in this moment. Lock me in that we all could lock in to hear from you, to encounter you and be changed forever more, to be moved towards greater intimacy in life. All this we ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Uh, meet me in Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, um, and really the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 is where we're going to be uh, today as we've been journeying through this series in the book of Colossians. Uh, the last portion of chapter 1 and the beginning portion of chapter 2 really affords us the opportunity to reimagine maturity 
and then explore what it looks like to pursue it. Right? That's the, that is the back half of chapter 1 and the front portion of chapter 2. It affords us the opportunity to reimagine what maturity is, Christian maturity, and then explore what it looks like to pursue it. Now, I said this first service, I'm going to say it again second service because I believe this deeply in my bones um, as I was just praying over the text and working through the text um, this week and even preparing for our sabbatical. It just felt like, man, God, this text can refresh us deeply, like it could create this greater sense of sobriety and awareness about what we should be cautious with and, and, and what you're calling us towards it. This text can provide freedom. And I just, I, I believe deeply in my heart that God wants to free some people today. I think he wants to refresh some hearts in a very unique, powerful way, and he wants to free some people from some bondage, even if it's secret bondage where you know but nobody else knows, but you feel it every single day. I just think there's a lot of freedom in this text. And so I want to walk through this text and prayerfully God would do that for us today. The text is Paul pressing into the heart of every single individual the goal of Christianity and ultimately the goal of Christian maturity. There's a flow to this text that I think would be helpful, and it's going to be the flow of our time as well. At the beginning portion, we get a beautiful reinforcement, and then we get a necessary caution, and then we get a grounding and guiding practice for pursuing Jesus. Those are the three chunks of this text that will be the chunk of our time. A beautiful reinforcement, a necessary caution, and then a grounding and guiding practice for pursuing Jesus. In fact, as we close there, I'm going to jump back up to some stuff that's in the reinforcement that's, that does work in us. But let's read, starting in verse 28, all the way down to chapter 2, verse 7, and then we'll take it bit by bit. It starts like this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, for this I toil, struggling with all this energy that he powerfully works within me. Chapter 2, verse 1, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. They haven't seen me, I haven't seen them, but there's a sincerity in my heart for their progress in the faith. There is this sincere, authentic, and powerful affection I have for them that they would know God. You ain't seen me, but what I want for you, not from you, matters. Here's what I want. Again, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches. If you underline stuff in your Bible or make stars and notes, underline that. Reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you, that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. 
For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, in light of, as a result, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I really like this passage a lot. Have you seen or heard Hamilton? If you haven't, there's forgiveness, there's grace uh, for you, right? But, you know, there's Cabinet of Battle number one, Cabinet of Battle number two, and there's this collision of poetry and ideas to make a point, right? Point being, Hamilton, this law should pass or this law should not pass. But it is assertive. There's a fierceness with trying to make a point. That is the space that we should be drawn into. Paul is using rich language. It's poetic, it's rooted in scripture, but he is not just trying to wax eloquent. He is not just trying to wow us with the way that he strings Greek ideas together. He is not just trying to impress people with the depth of his knowledge. He is trying to make a point, namely, that maturity matters. He is trying to make this point that maturity is meaningful. And he is trying to make a point that there are some significant ideas that draw us further into maturity. And there's some significant ideas that will pull us away from maturity. Cabinet battle number two is the space that we're stepping into. Stop playing games. At the beginning of this push to lay in front of us, maturity matters. We get a beautiful reinforcement of the goal and gain of maturity. I like that. That's Colossians 1, 28. He says it plainly. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That the goal of Christian maturity is Christ likeness. Just like Christ tells the truth about who God is, God's people tell the truth about Christ. That is the goal of Christian maturity, that we would look like the one we claim. Now, as he starts to expand this goal, he he really draws us into some dynamics that are often lost on us, specifically people in the Western world. Notice the language. We, us. In other words, this Christian maturity that he is after is inherently corporate. It's collective maturity. In Paul's estimation, it would not be a win or success if he crosses the finish line and he's like, I'm good. But he crosses the finish line alone. In his mind, this goal that is driving him forward, that he's like, yo, I am willing to suffer for this thing. 
I am willing to be in chains for this thing. I am willing to be beaten for this thing. This goal that is dragging him forward is I am moving towards Christ's likeness and other people are moving along this journey with me. And we're experiencing something powerful. This matters, guys. I use this illustration often partly because I'm traumatized and partly because I just can't think of a better one. Group projects are hard. They pull at various aspects of our personality and our soul. And there is no success in a group project where you're like, yo, you know, I did all the things I was supposed to do. I did my part. The rest of the group didn't. So I go to the professor or I go to the teacher and I'm like, yo, prof, I did me. What's up? And they're like, oh, man, you know what? I see your effort. Let me give you an A. Nah, fail. Because the goal was the group. Built into the identity of the people of God is to move along a path where we try to get corporate, collective maturity, where we progress forward in the faith, not just individuals. That matters. So if you're like, man, I believe that people should be thinking about me, should consider me, you're correct. There's more here. And it's, what's meaningful about this is he's not just laying out the goal. The reinforcement isn't just a goal of maturity. It's the gain of maturity as well. Like, like read with me. So this is, I had you underline it, verse 2 in chapter 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. There's, there is a depth that Paul wants people to experience. That the riches that he is after can be summarized as this ever-increasing experience of knowing and enjoying the God of the universe. And he says, reach that, grab that, cling to it. That the gain of maturity is this ever-increasing experience of life. Why do you want to grow if you're a Christian? If it's not for that, let me give you a better reason. Now, this is why this hits me differently. Because this is an attack on what I believe is warring against so many people right now, which is underwhelming Christianity. Underwhelming Christianity is the type of Christianity, it's where you have enough faith to pull you forward, to pull you to the edge of your comfort zone, but never cross the line. In other words, it's faith that moves you forward with the things that you can control. That's underwhelming Christianity. Underwhelming Christianity is a type of Christianity that likes Jesus' words, I will give you rest, but resists his words, come die with me. That's underwhelming Christianity. Underwhelming Christianity is a type of Christianity that has a bark that is bigger than its bite. So you could throw out ideas, information. You are a master at Christian jeopardy. Nobody's beating you. 
But the ideas, they don't seep into the depth of our soul, and they do nothing with everyday life. And so as Neil said some four weeks ago, we don't have a faith that meets the demands of our day. That's underwhelming Christianity. And underwhelming Christianity is easy. It is easy and it is attractive because it rests in what we could do. It doesn't ask us for anything. But it's not the riches that Paul is saying, I am laboring for you to experience and we should be laboring for others to experience as well. It's a beautiful reinforcement of the goal and gain of Christian maturity. Reimagine it with me. Now, as he starts to move them towards this experience of depth, there's a caution that he gives them as well. It's a necessary caution. Read with me verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. With plausible arguments. Plausible arguments, (laughs) they're arguments or ideas that often bear a fraction of truth, a resemblance of wisdom, and they speak to a sincere desire, doubt, or concern in an appealing way. Here's what they're not. So, start of the pandemic, I was in some WhatsApp groups. Now, if you are second gen, you know, immigrant, you know that WhatsApp is like immigrant Facebook. It's weird, right? Like, you know, your parents got a hold of it, your grandparents got a hold of it, and now they won't leave you alone. You're like, oh my God. They could contact me from Haiti. Oh, my God, they could contact me from Nigeria. Yeah, and so you try to airplane mode. Anyway, nevertheless. And at the start of the pandemic, I was having conversations with some of our members, some people in the city, and it was very eerie how there were similar conversations. And with some of my Haitian friends, they were like, COVID, ah, just drink some Haitian tea. I'm like, what is that? Yeah, and I'm not going to name my aunts, but they were like, COVID, get some bitter leaf some cola nuts, and then add some ginger ale, mix that thing together, and you're good. And I'm like, I feel like that would kill me before COVID would kill me, but praise God, right? Now, when they gave us this information, we're like, nobody did that. Now, maybe you did, but nobody did that. We're like, that don't make no sense. That is not a plausible argument. That is not a plausible idea. It's not the outrageous. It's not the obvious. It's that which bears a fraction of truth, resembles wisdom, and speaks to sincere desires, doubts, or concerns in an appealing way. It's plausible arguments that are ultimately lies built on micro distortions and subtle dilution. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the goat goats, he has this quote that I think is powerful. He, he says it this way. We have somehow, somehow got a hold of the idea that error is only that which is outrageously wrong, and we do not seem to understand that the most dangerous person of all is the one who does not emphasize the right things. That's plausible arguments. Micro distortions, imbalanced emphases. Now, Paul has a plausible argument or idea in mind that he is speaking to directly. We've talked about it before. He's getting ready to go in on it again, and it's called Gnosticism. 
And Gnosticism essentially was this heresy, this idea that created this way of thinking which was dualistic. First and foremost, it was the separation of physical and matter, that which is, quote unquote, secular from spiritual. And if it's physical, all the physical attributes, it's either inherently evil, unimportant, but ultimately inferior. Therefore, you should get away from it. Don't deal with it. Focus on spiritual. That's one aspect of Gnosticism. The other aspect of Gnosticism was not just this dualistic way of thinking that had a lot of problems, but it was this claim to special knowledge. We have access to unique information about God from God. We have this unique knowledge, this special wisdom that provides us a special type of relationship and experience with God. And if you want that experience, you got to get like me. So here's the list of things you need to do so that you can level up and now you can have the same knowledge and the same experience as me. And it's plausible because that speaks to something deep inside of us. We want more all the time. If you've been a Christian for longer than seven years, you know what I know has happened to you at some point in time? You ran into the plateau where it felt like you had too much information to really enjoy your former life. Right? I know too much. Ah, I can't enjoy it that much. But there wasn't this excitement or animation about the future, so you were almost stagnant and stuck. And you know what I've seen happen when people run into that plateau, when I ran into that plateau? We reach for new information, a new strategy, so that we could get more access to more knowledge so we could have a better experience. That sounds like Gnosticism. But it's common because it speaks to a sincere desire. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. Now, the plausible arguments that he is attacking, they afford us the opportunity to ask, what are some plausible arguments that we might be believing? And asking that question involves asking or examining what's going on in our environment, the environment around us, as well as the environment inside us. So for us in South Florida, what are some plausible ideas or arguments that bear a bit of truth, resemble some wisdom, and speak to sincere desires, doubts, or concerns in our hearts in an appealing way? Let me give you one. In Miami, you know what we hear a lot of? We may not use this word. We may not say in this way. But ultimately, it's this. Your greatest contribution is the work you do, not who you are. You are your work. That's why some of us are so exhausted. Because we're trying and we're trying and we're hustling. And there's more. Not only, not only is that one of the, just the ideas that I'm just watching just suck people dry, there's another one. Your greatest experience of life and joy is attached to the image that you maintain or create. Look this way and you'll feel this way. 
exhausting. Exhausting. There's more. Your experience of joy and meaning and success is attached to the relationships you have access to. So make sure you do the things that are necessary to put you in the right rooms so you can brush shoulders with the right people and eventually, exhausting. And we end up compromising values and who we are because we're pretending and performing. Miami exhausts us all. But it's easy to believe because we want something more. You know, an argument, an idea that is plausible, that's not just in Miami, I think it's in our moment right now. I'm going to read it for us. It's this. Christianity is insufficient for everyday life or navigating significant issues of our day. If anything, Christianity is the cause of the significant issues of our day. And so, what we need to do is we need some modern version of the faith of old. Small distortions, subtle dilutions. There's something better. I love what Paul is doing. Paul is not merely saying, here's the caution. Here is the plausible argument. Now I want you to understand every single aspect of this argument so that you could be free from its entrappings. That's not what he's doing. He says this instead. Reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. That the way I want you to be free from the plausible arguments of deception is to give yourself over to loving truth well. Love the fullness of who God is. Dive into the depths of who he is and what he says. Examine deeply, drink deeply from the word of God and the person of Christ. There's nothing wrong with being able to articulate all the ins and outs of various arguments and ideas that are problematic. But you know what I've seen? I've seen that we've done that, and what we've now encountered is some cliff note Christianity. So, when I was in school way back then, praise God, man, I had hustler vibes. So I would like do other people's homework, I would write their papers for them, and I'd make money on the side, you know, help them cheat on the SAT. It was a whole industry. I'm not proud of it, but it happened, you know. I, Jesus' name. And there was times where I was doing other people's homework so much that I forgot to deal with my AP classes. And I was like, oh. So you know what I did? I reached for cliff notes and spark notes. And those were those yellow books and those blue books, and they essentially summarized the book for you. So when it's like, you got to do this paper on Lord of the Flies, why would I want to read this? Cliff notes. And essentially, I was writing papers on other people's ideas, themes that they saw that I didn't do the hard work of finding and discovering myself. Cliff note Christianity is easy. And when we're so 
involved in trying to understand all the other arguments instead of diving into who God is and what God says, that's what we walk away with. Other people's ideas instead of what God wants to speak to our hearts directly resist that. There's so much better for you. Now, I want to move on. We're spending a lot of time here, but I want to make sure that this is said. The way this is juxtaposed could create some confusion if we're not careful, right? So he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. If we're not careful, we could equate firmness of faith with just having better arguments for bad arguments. Now, the reason why I want to say that, or at least give a moment to that, is because if you've been in Christianity for any degree amount of time, and specifically if you run in certain tribes or circles, i.e. one tribe being the Reformed tribe, you've come around this phrase before, theologically sound. And often, what theologically sound means is you have better arguments for the bad ones. Carl Ellis Jr., another one of the goat goats, says this, it is unacceptable to say that one can be theologically sound yet be errant on the issue of social ethics. He's right. And I'm going to take it a little further. You can't be theologically sound and socially incompetent. You can't be theologically sound, but the consistent description that's associated with you is jerk. You can't be theologically sound, and the consistent description associated with you is arrogant. You can't be theologically sound and unforgiving. A friend of mine by the name of Michaud, he says, like, an unforgiving Christian is a, like a racist rainbow. They both despise what defines them. We cannot say that the God of the universe lives inside of us and we understand the depths of the gospel and the riches of who God is and what God has done while holding on to resentment in our heart. It doesn't work that way. Can't be theologically sound, yet your heart is corroded by bitterness. You can't be theologically sound, yet you're consumed with yourself. You can't be theologically sound, able to articulate the majesty of providence, the depths of justification, the nature of sanctification and how God moves us towards Christian maturity, Christ-likeness together. Yet you talk to your wife like trash. Come on, fam, that's crazy. That you have these dope books on your shelf and you, you articulate this truth, but the way you love your wife is horrible. That is not theologically sound. To understand that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the prototype of manhood, yet you're abusive with your words. Come on. That's crazy. 
It's a contradiction. It's all of us. And Paul is not saying, yeah, the end game is this firmness, which is you talking better. The end game is an experience with Christ, where contradictions are systematically and progressively erased. But as they're there, praise God that God loves the contradictions. He cares for us all. Grace is glorious. He loves us where we are, contradictions and all. But he loves us too much to leave us where we are. He moves us forward towards firmness and maturity. And the way he moves us forward is partnership. It's partnership, which is why this last bit is really meaningful. We get a, a grounding and guiding practice for pursuing Jesus. Um, verse 6 reads like this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. It is simple, straightforward, saturated, and freeing. This is where freedom comes in a unique way for me. Christian, how did you receive Christ? Was it because of your intellectual prowess and your ability to reason and to string hard concepts together that you arrived at the conclusion that God is who he says he is and has revealed himself fully and excellently in Christ Jesus? That's how you came to know him? That's how you received him? Your intellectual prowess? Christian, how did you receive Jesus? Was it because of your sincerity that you felt it really deeply in your heart? And there was this emotional moment and you were like, yes, finally. Christian, how did you receive Jesus? Was it effort? Did you string together all of the Bible studies? Did you string together all of the singing, all of the Sunday attendance, all of the fasting? So you went from 40 days to 60 days and you're wasting away, but you got that Ivan Drago mindset, if I die, I die. Is that how you received Christ? By effort. Or is there something else for us? This is Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 reads like this. But God. Praise God for the but gods. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. Did you get that? The plan of God for your life is to be kind to you, to love you so fully, so deeply, so authentically, so everlastingly, that when people see you, they're like, make sense of that. That the angelic host of heavens will look at Christians and say, God, how do you keep loving them 
Why are you pouring out grace for them? God's plan over your life is to love you well and fully. Let that just wash over you. He has good plans for you. For by grace you have been saved. And it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Christian, how did you receive Jesus? Grace. 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 God's grace is God's unmerited favor extended to us. Grace. It's favor that often shows up in the moments where shame and guilt and despair and confusion and fatigue threaten to take over and consume, and grace steps in and says, enough. This is my son. This is my daughter. I have pleasure in them grace grace god's divine empowerment working in through and for us grace is how anyone will ever receive jesus and faith faith is taking who god is and what god says as true that's the simplicity of it Stop mustering up motivation. Stop mustering up strength that you don't have. It's not mustering up confidence that is tossed easily and frequently with the reality of life. Faith is just staring at God and saying, I am willing to take who you are and what you say as true. That's how anyone receives him. And then he says, well, if that's how you receive him, that's how you walk in them. It's not, hey, come up with all these new strategies. Here's, here's a book for 10 steps to now get a... It's grace. God's unmerited favor extended to me. His divine empowerment working in, through, for me. And faith to take who he is and what he says is true. And then I walk, grace, faith, grace, faith, grace, faith, every step of the way until I walk into the fullness of who God is and what God has for me. It's just grace and faith. That's it. And that's freeing because I don't have to be smart. I don't have to be clever. I don't have to be the hardest worker. I just have to be willing. And grace meets me. And faith drags me forward. It's freedom. It's the practice that grounds and guides us in closing. The spiritual malpractice exchange God's grace for my effort. It leaves us tired. God is moving us with grace and faith towards the riches he has laid in front. But there's another way that we receive Christ. It's as children. And that way we receive Christ, I think, is tied to experiencing the depths of the riches in ways that are very hard to quantify, but it's their example. Kids get excited easily. It is easy to wow children. 
Dad, what is that? So you just take a potato and you cut it and you fry it and now you get this fry. That's how you get fries? Yeah, I promise it's not that deep, but you know. Oh my God! Dad, kombucha, oh my goodness, boba tea, like what is food? Because that's what we do at our house and anime, among other things. The depth of just, it's not naive, it's innocence. It's to not be stained by despair. It's to not be so smart that you forgot that you're human. The innocence of receiving Christ as a child, you know. To be willing to be wild. Man, would we be willing to let God wow us again? To blow our minds again. And then the humility that says, I can't, but you can. Noah has braids. He has this Kawhi letter thing going on right now. I don't know what we're going to do. Maybe we're going to let it lock up. But he can't put his durag on. So a durag is a, he can't put his durag on right now. So every night he comes to me and he's like, um, I need you to use your words because you're, you're not too grow up, right? And I help him and I put it on and I tie it tight. And then if he had a bad day, I just like yank that bad boy a little bit harder. You know, I'm just busy. <laughs> it's contradictions in me that are coming out. And so I yank it, make sure that it doesn't fall off as he sleeps. And that's, that's, just, that's childlike to know that you need help doing something and the humility to actually ask for it. If you are struggling right now, ask for help. Ask for help. And I know it's hard. I know it's hard. And honestly, if we actually embrace our identity as the people of God, so we see our collective maturity as quoted our identity, then I need to be so invested in your life that you don't even have to ask. That's the ideal. But when the ideal is not present, we step forward, encourage, ask for help. Grace, faith, childlike innocence, willing to be wild, and humility propels us forward in this ever-increasing experience of joy. I want it for you. Paul wants it for you. God wants it for you. Reach for the riches. Pray with me.